0: As designers and design leaders, most of us understand the ethical importance of making our products accessible and inclusive for all the people who use them. But we don't always understand the best way to go about doing this, or how to make the business case for making it a priority. That's why we were excited to speak with Annie Jean-Baptiste,
1: head of product inclusion at Google. Our recent guest, John Maeda said, if there's one voice in tech to listen to right now, It's Annie's on the material impact of inclusion in
0: business today and in the future. Annie recently wrote a really great book called Building for Everyone. Expand your market with design practices from Google's product inclusive team. We ask her about what spurred her to write the book. and We talk about some of the strategies she uses for researching, designing, and shipping inclusive products. We hope you come away from this conversation with some ideas you can bring back to your own team
1: to make better products for everyone. Thanks for listening.
0: Annie jean Baptista, thanks so much for joining us on the Design Better podcast today.
2: Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: It's our pleasure. You've got a really fascinating role at Google, and it's very broad because it, it's not just Google, which is a large organization, but it's also Alphabet, which is additional projects and teams as well. Your official title is Head of Product Inclusion at Google. Maybe we could start by just talking about like that role and tell us what it entails.
2: Sure. Yes. So product inclusion is all about bringing an inclusive lens to the entire product design process. And so I get to help make sure that teams at Google are building products for everyone. It's really about thinking through what points in the product design process do we need to ask who else and kind of bring voices that have historically been underrepresented into the process so that we really build better products for everyone.
0: So how does it work with that many teams across such a huge company, Do you have a team of folks underneath you who are supporting all these other teams inside of Google?
2: Yeah, we have a small central team, but we also have some full-time people in our different product areas, and we also have what we call inclusion champions. So these are Googlers who have volunteered to help us do this work, for example, doing inclusive product testing, and they come from all different backgrounds and walks of life. In product inclusion, we focus on 12 dimensions of diversity and the intersections of those dimensions. And so we want to make sure, again, at those critical phases, whether it's user research, user testing, marketing, we're bringing those inclusion champions in at those points.
0: Got to ask, tell us more about the specific dimensions that you're looking at. That sounds fascinating.
2: I always forget one, so forgive me. If only 11, but, <laughs> it's a lot to remember. Um, <laughs> right. It's things like race, ethnicity, age, ability, sexual orientation, religion, gender, geography, culture, socioeconomic status, basically looking at the groups that have been historically underrepresented in the product design process and how we can make sure that we're intentional about bringing them in and thinking really intersectionally as well. So I always say to teams, I'm a Black woman and I'm left-handed, but I'm not Black on Monday, left-handed on Tuesday, and a woman on Wednesday, right? Like that is always happening within me and that's going to affect how I interact with products. And so there may be one of the dimensions that is more prominent depending on what I'm using. So if I'm using scissors, for example, obviously being left-handed is, is what dimensions it's going to lean into, but it's really important to think holistically about our users because there are multiple facets that make them who they are.
1: Andy, I'm wondering if we could back up a little bit and learn about your path into how you got to your current role because you didn't, you didn't start here at Google, but you've been there for a long time. So maybe tell us a story of you know, your start at Google and how you kind of worked your way into your current role.
2: Yes. So I applied to Google because my brother actually had been an intern there a few summers before. And I was really just inspired by the mission of Google and thought that they're working on really amazing, audacious things. I started in the global business organization, helping Google's customers think through their holistic presence online with things like Google Search and YouTube. While I was doing that, I had 20% projects. So we're allowed to spend 20% of our time doing something that we're passionate about. And it may or may not Be part of our core role. So, I was doing a lot of work with our employee resource groups and also helping get underrepresented businesses online because at the time we saw that it was more likely that underrepresented businesses wouldn't have a web presence. And we know how important that is. I had a manager who was like, You have a lot of 20% projects, and clearly diversity inclusion is your passion. So, let's see how we can move you to do that work full time. And so, I I moved onto our diversity team and was a diversity business partner. And that role is about helping our senior leaders who lead a product area, figure out their organizational health as it relates to diversity and inclusion. So things like culture and representation. And while I was doing that, I think it was pretty clear to a few of us that there was an opportunity to kind of expand how we talk about diversity and equity and inclusion. It's obviously of paramount importance in terms of internal culture and representation, And it's really important because we're building for billions of users around the world who may not look, act, or think like the product teams that are creating. So how do we make sure that those voices and perspectives are represented? And that's kind of how product inclusion got started. So it is yet another 20% project with a few of us who wanted to figure out how we could infuse inclusion into product design in addition to all the work that was happening with culture and representation internally.
0: And as you work with different teams, does your team have some sort of like framework toolkit that you bring with you that as you interact with teams, it's sort of like can be instructional and also like leave behind to help guide them going forward? Because you're you're scaling across such a huge organization. There's got to be some tools to help you out.
2: Yes, we definitely have a toolkit. And what we've done is we did research actually over the past year on the business case for inclusion. And what we found were we have multiple touch points in the product design process from ideation to when it launches and key points in between. What we found were there are four points in the product design process where teams kept coming back and or if they did kind of focus and lean into product inclusion at those points, they disproportionately affected to be a more inclusive outcome. So those four points are the ideation, user research and design, user testing and marketing phases. And so we really focused on building out resourcing across those four points. There are many more points that we also focus on, but I think that those have been really important for us to think about. And I think it makes sense The earlier on that you do this work, and we have three tenants that we leave teams with, but the earlier on you start with equity, the better it is. If you try to do something right before launch, it's obviously going to be a lot harder to kind of infuse those perspectives and change the direction. So we try to help teams come as early as possible. It's really also important that you address the user. You have to be really specific about who we're talking about when we're saying underrepresentation. That's going to look different depending on a product, it's going to look different depending on nuance. Some constituents that are underrepresented in the US, it's going to look different abroad. So, really being specific about addressing the user. And then I think the third thing is we continually have to test. Just like any other part of the product design process, you need to constantly be testing and iterating and taking in that feedback and changing the output. It's not like a one and done type of thing. This is always something that's a journey and we're constantly learning. So making sure that we're constantly testing is really important. An example of that is the work that we've done with the Google Assistant. We started working with the Google Assistant even before it initially launched. And what we thought about was, an assistant is supposed to kind of show up and be there for you in in key moments that matter in your life. But it also had the, I don't wanna say opportunity, but it, it could potentially say biased or alienating things. And so how do we mitigate that upfront versus having to fix that after the fact? And so what we did was we brought our inclusion champions into the process and we did adversarial testing. So we essentially tried to break the product before it launched. And what we thought about was there's no way a product team can know all of the things that we wouldn't want to include and all of the things that are positive that a community would want to see in an assistant. But the communities do know that. And so if we bring them into the process, they'll actually be able to help co-create. And so when the assistant launched, it was a very infinitesimal amount of escalations that we had to act on. And that was a testament to the cross-collaboration. And we continue to kind of update it, whether it's for Pride Month or we just launched some new responses around racial justice and Juneteenth, et cetera. And so the that kind of shows, right, it's a continual process. We're continually iterating, understanding, learning more, getting feedback from our users. And, and that is going to be a long-term partnership between many teams.
1: So Annie, maybe you mentioned research a little bit, and we're curious if you have any, you know, you could talk a little bit more about the research strategies that you use for inclusive design, or even how you kind of measure the, the effectiveness of the things that you have implemented
2: user research is one of the four main pieces and we've set up a product inclusion user research working group across Google, right? So it has members of the central accessibility team and a lot of the product areas. And so what we think about is what are the existing practices that researchers use and how do we embed an inclusive lens, right? So an example of that would be if we're doing research only in the Bay Area, for example, that's not reflective of all of our users. And so we need to make sure that we go to rural and urban areas and things like that. In terms of research, I think in general, it's really important for us because we don't have it all figured out, right? So it's important for us to understand what levers do we need to be pulling and pushing, what actually over-indexes to have a more inclusive output, because that is going to constantly shift and there's nuance. What works for Pixel phone is going to be different for emojis. What we work with both of those teams. And so how do we make sure that we're understanding kind of what the needs are, what the challenges and opportunities are? And the only way we can do that is to do deep research with a wide number of constituents from underrepresented communities.
0: What we're hearing is a lot of design teams are becoming a lot more aware of the shortcomings in their process, shortcomings in their teams too. That's a, That's something we'd like to talk about as well, but not quite sure where to start in terms of like thinking more inclusively. Designers often bring great intentions to their work, but the outcomes of our work don't always map to those intentions. What sort of advice could you give to individual contributors and leaders in trying to be more sophisticated in inclusive design?
2: I think it's a great question. You hit the nail on the head, exactly what I was going to say. We have to move to focusing on outcomes and impact. I would say, Most people are not trying to leave people out, but there's a great quote that says, if you don't intentionally include, you will unintentionally exclude. And so I think it's really about accountability. Where are there points in your process where it behooves you to ask who else and to broaden the circle of who is kind of co-creating and has a seat at the table? Thinking through... What are the metrics that matter in terms of user sentiment if you're getting CSAT, right? Like, do you know who is providing feedback? And if there are gaps in that, how do you get to those users, right? How do you understand, are they using your product? Are they not? Why? And I think that goes down to really looking at the data. You need to be able to look at the data and you need to understand who kind of the demographics are, in order to make sure that you're you're building for and with everyone. And I think leaders have such an important role in this because they can help cascade down the importance of this. This isn't just a moment. This is something that we all need to focus on for the long term. And so I think giving their teams kind of space and empowering them to do that and setting up accountability and resources like getting inclusive testing and things like that or inclusive storytelling and marketing, I think that that's really, really important.
1: So you've got a book coming out soon, and uh, it's called Building for Everyone, Expand Your Market with Design Practices from Google's product inclusion team. We'll ask you some specific questions about the book, but maybe you could talk a little bit about why you wanted to write it and the process for writing it.
2: I think that it's important to kind of share the journey that we've been on. Again, we're still on the journey and there's a lot to learn, but I think it's interesting to kind of start to expand into why diversity and inclusion matters in product design, right? I think that there's a lot of really incredible work that has been done in the accessibility space, for example. And so it's really just building upon multiple dimensions of diversity and how, when you co-create and shape things together, the outcome is actually better for everyone. So I think that it was interesting in writing this book, finding a lot of the curbed cut effect that came from the accessibility community, where you start by creating something for a specific underrepresented group or fixing something for a specific underrepresented group, but actually the outcome is better for everyone. And so I think that it's important to kind of share that journey as well. What we've found is it's not just underrepresented users who care about this. It's the majority of users, period. And so if you're trying to meet the expectations of consumers currently and in the future, it's really important to make sure that their voices are heard and you're not assuming you know what they need without speaking to them.
0: You mentioned earlier that your team had been doing research about the business case for diversity, which is fascinating. Also, feels like, do we have to make a business case? Yeah. It's the, the right thing to do. But <laughs> could you talk a little bit about that business case and the broad benefits? So you started to hint at, at some of those things that what we've learned from the accessibility movement was that when we design accessible experiences, everybody benefits from that. Like temporary disability, or I've got a child in one hand and a phone in the other, and I have to do something one-handed. But diversity, and including so many people, Google talks a lot about designing for the next billion users. You cannot achieve that business goal without thinking about inclusion and diversity. What's the business case that people should be bringing to inside their organizations?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, you started to kind of allude to them, right? Like, I think that there's a misconception that just because a group is underrepresented that they don't have power, and that's not true. And I'm talking about cultural power, purchasing power, like you mentioned, 700 million people are coming online in the next few years. That's from places like Nigeria. You have to think about that. There are 1 billion people in the world with a disability, and that's a, a permanent disability, not to mention like the, the examples that you shared. When you look at Hispanic, Latinx, and Black users, many times they over-index on mobile, and that's the primary way they're getting online. And so it's clear that there are stats and data points around usage, but also purchasing power and things like that. Black Users in the U.S. have, I think it's $1.4 trillion in purchasing power. That's trillions with a T. And so it makes business sense, right, to make sure that you are building something that can reach and amplify and power people's lives in, in the way that technology is supposed to, or any other product or service, right? It's not just technology. But the only way that you can do that is to make sure that you have those perspectives at the table. You can't launch something and expect it's going to work for everyone because, It just won't if you're not intentional about it. And so I think that that's that's part of the business case. I think the second piece that's really important is that we looked at what consumers cared about and their perceptions on this work, I think, I'll speak for myself personally, I expected to see that it was underrepresented groups that cared about inclusive product design and inclusive marketing. That actually wasn't the case. It was the majority of users, period, that cared about that. And so I think that that's a, a bit of a cognitive shift that it's not just people who are underrepresented who care about a product being inclusive and equitable and storytelling and marketing to be that. It's the majority of users. And I think we'll continue to see that trend grow and grow.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit betterhelp.com slash designbetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com designbetter. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to UpliftDesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T DESK.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5.
1: In your book, you talk about the ABCs of product inclusion.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: you obviously can't go into as great depth as I'm sure you go into the book, but maybe you could give a high-level overview of what that means.
2: We want to make it as easy as possible, right, for people to do this work. And I think it's really about what I had shared before, right? Like, I think that the continually testing is really important to always be addressing distinct needs of underrepresented users is really important. And the only way you'll know those distinct needs is if you talk to them and work with them. So I think that a lot of times you might notice something is off and like you should follow that instinct. I think an example of that is some of our most long-standing work has been with camera sensors and also with our Pixel team. And what we found three years ago with the sensors specifically was the team was all white that was testing out the proximity sensor, right? And they realized that really quickly and they were like, well, this works for, you know, this amount of length, but like, we don't know if it works for everyone that way. Fast forward, when we look at our, our Pixel camera, the team has been incredible about making sure that they're bringing a multitude of people with different skin tones in so that the pixel camera works for all different shades so when you take a picture which is supposed to be a memory of the people places and things you care about the most you want to make sure that everyone is beautifully and accurately represented but that's not going to happen if you're not being intentional about that right and so the team did a lot of testing to make sure that people were showing up in the way that they wanted to
0: You've mentioned a couple times the continuous research, and that's, that's fascinating because that feels like a slightly different shift from practices that a lot of design teams are doing already or have been doing for a while. And in a previous episode of the Design Better podcast, we spoke with Jahan Manton and Boywin Gao, and they talked about working with what they call the source. So that's a, a group, underrepresented group, co-creating something you just described as well, co-creating, being involved in that process, And then going back on a regular basis to check in, like, these were our intentions. What actually happened from the thing that we created? Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the cadence of like, how frequently should design teams be checking in with the source, with that group of people that they specifically want to make sure that they're serving well? And then what does that look like? Is that like, come into the studio or we go visit you? What's that research cadence and process look like?
2: I think it'll look different for different teams, but one thing I'll say is I think product inclusion can embed into the existing systems you have. So it's just about really thinking about what demographics have maybe been more at the margins and really bringing them into the center. If you're doing research every three months, I would just say, make sure that you're looking at multiple dimensions of diversity in that research every three months and going back to the teams. To your question around, do I go to them? Do they come to me? I think that that is Going to depend. One of the things I think is really important is to make research participants feel comfortable. If someone has a disability, for example, and it's hard for them to get into the studio, you should make Preparations to go there and make them feel comfortable. If you're talking about topics of race or ethnicity, for example, you might want to think about having a diverse group of researchers, right? So that people feel like you're valuing diversity and there are people from different backgrounds and walks of life. So I think it's just about the existing practices you have. How do you bring that lens of inclusion into them? And how do you hold yourself accountable? So if you're looking at metrics on a quarterly basis, you should have a metric around inclusion and inclusive practices or inclusive testing. And just like any other part of your product design process, you're measuring that accordingly. So I think it can feel like a a through line, I think, through existing practices. It's just really about finding those points where you're most likely to need to kind of bring those voices that have historically been underrepresented in.
0: What are some of those metrics you've seen teams reference as they're staying conscious of diversity in their work?
2: Making sure that the experience is equitable and inclusive is is a really important one, right so we've seen that again with the pixel we've seen that with assistant. I think that thinking through escalations and things like that, so another example is our smart compose, which like auto completes your emails. That team also from the beginning brought product inclusion in and did adversarial testing to make sure that it wasn't going to say offensive things. It's really important to figure out like at what points do you need to bring this in and who do you need to bring in, right? It's not that every single time you're going to bring in 12, (laughs) you know, people from all 12 dimensions of diversity. Like I I totally get that. But I think it's about taking a step back and saying like, what is a, a truly inclusive product that everyone feels seen, validated and uplifted? What does that experience look like? Who have we not talked to to make sure that they would have that experience? And then at w- what points are we going to bring them in? I think that it's also about naming things. There are things that are <laughs> we don't want to have users experience, but if we don't talk about those before it happens, how are we supposed to fix it? So I think naming things like, oh, there are people with different skin tones, we can't see everyone with this certain lighting, like there's no way you're going to fix that if you don't talk about it. So I think that that also is something that's really important is to, to build muscle about talking about things that can seemingly be uncomfortable because it gets a lot easier if you continue to do it.
1: And you mentioned the research team and the importance of having some diverse representation on that team. And we're curious how the product inclusion team maybe influences the hiring practices across the company.
2: I used to be on the diversity team, and we worked in partnership with our recruiting team. I like to think of it as people, process, and product, and they're kind of three legs to a stool, and so they're inextricably linked. You're trying to get to representation that reflects the world so that those inputs are going into your product design. You want to have a processes, one where people can thrive and shine for their differences so they feel comfortable, speaking up or saying, hey, that doesn't work for me. I don't think my grandma would like that. Have we tried it with older users? And you want to have a process that's systematized so that you are bringing people in at those key inflection points. So process kind of has two different lanes. And that's all for an end product that is inclusive and equitable and shows up for people in the moments that matter most for them. Recruiting is integral. Having representation of people from all different backgrounds and walks of life is integral to building inclusive products and services. And I think... While a team or company works to get to that representation, there are things you can do. You can be intentional about still building and just finding ways to kind of bring those perspectives to the table, even if your team isn't reflective of that. Even if you think about a smaller team, maybe you don't have a ton of, let's say, representation across multiple axes of diversity. If it's only the, you know, a design team that is creating the idea and the strategy, maybe bring someone in from HR, maybe bring someone in from marketing, maybe bring someone in from Eng in those sprints, because they're going to have a, a much different perspective. And a lot of times they can highlight things that feel really different, and we would have never thought of. Even in creating some of the resources for product inclusion, I would create them, and then I would be like, oh, this is amazing, like, it's going to be great. And I I would talk to a product manager who would say, no product manager is going to use this, and let me tell you why. And so we would recreate it together because, like, they understand what their community needs. And that's the same thing for product inclusion. I'm not going to assume I know what users in Indonesia need and assume that I know what they need because... I have an idea, I need to go be on the ground and understand and talk to them and understand their lived experiences. And so I think no matter the size of your team, it's really about bringing in perspectives that are different from yours, bringing in people who aren't always in it all the time so that they can bring a new flavor and a new lens to it.
0: It's fascinating to see so many companies catching up and forming roles that focus on diversity and inclusion. We see it in a lot of software companies, but across markets, And I'm curious if you have advice or guidance for people who are passionate about this topic, who believe that this is part of their life's mission, that this is something that they want to pursue and bring to their organization. How do they step into that role? Because it's not like we go to school and get a degree in diversity and inclusion. And some people are passionate advocates and they are in a well-represented group. How does one find their way into this role in an organization and make a case?
2: I would say, figuring out how to balance the business and the human case is really important. We've talked about the business case earlier, but I think it's really important to balance data and stories and figure out how this aligns to what your company cares about. You know, at Google, we're organizing the world's information and making it universally accessible and useful. And for me, product inclusion really leans into the universal piece, right? So it goes back to the mission. So I think that that's really important. I think the second piece is if you've identified opportunities, start to crystallize what those are. If you're saying, I think our product would be really amazing if we did X, Y, and Z, and that would open up more opportunity for us to reach older users, for example. Figure out like what those nuggets are of opportunity, and I think people get really excited about that. I think the last piece is, I would say, for, like you mentioned, people who may not be part of an underrepresented group who are excited about it. I think that product inclusion is the perfect way to do that. Many times, people who are product managers, program managers, designers, you may not be part of an underrepresented group, but you are having a critical part in the design process. And so I think that's where the accountability comes in, thinking through, okay, these are the steps I take to design. Where can I start to bring in other perspectives? And how can I hold my team accountable to doing that for the long term? And then the last piece I would say is just to listen. I think that a big part of learning to be an ally and an advocate is to listen to the story to the challenges, to the opportunities, and be humble. And I definitely have to do that with the communities I'm trying to become a better ally to, and understand that you'll make mistakes, and that's okay. But it's really towards an end goal of building products and services that work for everyone. And as long as we're all kind of moving towards that north star, I think it's okay when things aren't perfect.
1: You mentioned uh, early in the episode these twelve different kind of facets of diversity, and I, I'm curious if any of them address ideological diversity at all? Because I, I, I know in our country right now, there's a huge division, obviously, ideologically. And I, I wonder, this may be kind of outside the scope of the type of work you do, but are there any opportunities for you know someone with your background to help kind of bridge the gap between people that aren't typically talking to each other right now?
2: What I would say to that is what we f- and product inclusion focus on are groups that have been historically underrepresented in the product design process. And so we want to think about groups that have been historically marginalized or underserved. I think that inevitably, of course, we're going to make sure that we have people who come from different backgrounds and walks of life, and there's never going to be complete consensus. And I think that that's the point of this work. So yes, I think that people will always have different ideas. We're not always going to agree, but I think within the team or within the family, we want to respectfully talk through all of that stuff and make sure that those who have been kind of historically at the margins have a place and can really help co-create the trajectory of where products go.
1: Annie, one of the other things in your book that I just read from kind of the synopsis was you talk about leveraging the product inclusion suite of tools. And I think we talked about that a little bit, a set of frameworks or tools that people might be used. Are there any other ones that you didn't cover yet?
2: We definitely have a bunch of different tools, both human communities that help and then actual tools and systems. I think it's a good balance. One of the things we have and that's outlined in the book is a product inclusion checklist. And so it actually kind of takes people through key points in the process and questions to ask and links resources to it. So example of that would be, let's say you're creating a deck, right? Like keep it really simple. Have you thought about color contrast? If you're presenting, are you going to be able to have captioning, things? like that. But it goes through different points in the process and then also aligns to the 12 dimensions of diversity. So teams, you know, especially in the beginning, it can be a little bit overwhelming. So we want to make sure that they can easily say, okay, I'm doing this part of the process. Here are the constituencies I should think about. Here are the questions and here are the resources linked right to that.
0: What was it like writing a book? (laughs) It's not fun, is it? (laughs) No, it's
2: not. (laughs) Yeah, it's much harder than I thought, I will say. And so kudos to everyone who has done more than one. I don't know how you did it. But yeah, I think what was really fun about writing the book was that there are a lot of Google teams that have sidebars or or wrote parts of it. And I think that that's just a testament to a cross-functional effort. None of this work can live within one person, one team. It has to be kind of throughout both top-down and bottom-up and through multiple roles, right? And so it was fun to be able to kind of go to teams I've worked with in the past and, and kind of reminisce on where it started, where it's going, what their proudest moments are. And so that kind of collaboration was was super, super fun. And also it was very helpful to reach the word limit that <laughs> my publishers had given me.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. It is, it's a challenging process, but it's satisfying to publish. So
2: yes. congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate
0: that. And speaking of books... What have you read recently that you found inspiring or helped you see your world in in a new way?
2: I love Adam grants all of Adam grant's work so Adam grant's originals book has been really helpful for me and I've also been reading Cleo Wade who is a really amazing like artist and she just she released this book and it's just all about where we are in the world right now and it's it's just a super compassionate book and I think you know at the end of the day this is about compassion and empathy right and making sure that people don't have an inadvertently alienating or biased experience and so I think that that kind of grounds me in why, the why behind this work. And then, as a bonus <laughs> book, I, I try to read at least fifteen pages a day so I can get through a lot of books is the history of fashion. And it's been really, really interesting to see over time, how design and fashion have changed and merged and how trends happen or fads, you know, happen. And I think that that's really interesting because one of the things that we've started to do is think about product inclusion in other spaces, not just in tech, but in design in general. And I think fashion is a clear place where that happens, where there's multiple dimensions of diversity you can think about in fashion. And so it's really interesting, I think, to take a, a framework and to try to position it in another industry and see what lands and what needs to be tweaked.
0: Sounds fascinating. Yeah, <laughs> Annie, thanks so much for joining us on the Design Better podcast.
2: Oh, Thank you so much for having me.